Welcome to Essential Ethics and this podcast in our series of classic conundrums. I'm your host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. Bone marrow transplantation has become the standard treatment for a range of diseases in both children and adults. This may be for a malignancy such as leukaemia, or other conditions such as severe combined immunodeficiency or sickle cell disease. In these circumstances, bone marrow transplantation offers the best chance of cure or long-term survival. Children, sometimes as young as six months old, often act as bone marrow donors for their siblings. This is because they are likely to be an HLA match, which reduces the risk of transplant complications. The donation generally comes from bone marrow, but may be peripheral blood cells, with each procedure carrying its own risks. Superficially, it might seem all very straightforward. Who wouldn't want to offer bone marrow for their sick sibling? However, and in particular with child donors, it's not so simple. There are risks to the child donor, physically and psychologically. And there are ethical considerations too. Do the children have a choice? How are they involved? Is the authority of the parent sufficient to give consent for the child donor in order to treat their affected child? To consider the complex issues of child donor for bone marrow transplant, we're joined by Associate Professor Michael Marks, General Paediatrician at Royal Children's Hospital, who's been working as patient advocate for child donors for bone marrow transplantation. We're also joined by Sharon Feldman, clinical ethicist at the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. Michael, how did you get involved in this area? I never applied for this job. I was called. So, in fact, my wife works in the cancer centre, and I think that's why I was a target. But uh, someone I admire greatly, Karen Tiedemann, was looking to wind down her role uh, in this, doing this, and, and just a terrific physician and oncologist, and I did some training with her. Uh, it was probably about uh, 12 years ago or so, and uh, after that time, sort of gradually uh, saw, started to see kids, and I see many kids each year um, referred to me now. Michael, it's interesting that uh, Karen was doing that work prior to asking you, because Karen was intimately involved in the oncology service and the bone marrow transplant Service, I think probably established bone marrow transplantation here at Royal Children's Hospital. And knowing Karen, it was you know an obvious thing to think of the child donor and think that they had special considerations. But interesting that she was looking after them when she was also involved in bone marrow transplant program. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I guess now we, we look and see maybe there's some uh, conflict of interest there and some ethical issues that might raise. Um, and I think um, through uh, the the body that accredits uh, uh, bone transplantation services, the, the called FACT, um, it's it's actually a requirement to have an independent uh, medical advocate uh, as as part of the team. Um, but uh, there are a lot of things we could do to improve what we were already doing, uh, and uh, certainly looking to to make some improvements in the future. But it's been a, a terrific journey so far, seeing lots of families who are who you know really looking forward to helping their their sick child and uh, so it's it's been really good 
good thing for me to do. Sounds like there's been an evolution in, in bone marrow transplant and the way we consider the patients and obviously the siblings. And it is good, I think, to have an independent person such as yourself being an advocate. What what does being an advocate for the siblings mean? What what are you doing? Well, um, practically, I I see that child uh, almost always with one or two more family members. Um, almost never with the sibling um, who requires, but occasionally the sibling will be present. And it's it's an outpatient visit, and uh, you know, quite often quite a long consultation. And things I talk about with with that child, the the potential donor, is that I'm there to be their doctor. Uh, I, I make it quite clear that the their siblings have enough doctors; they don't need me as well. Um, I, but I also say that I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a cancer doctor or a hematologist or a infectious diseases doctor. I'm I'm a general paediatrician, and so, so some of it is is just explaining my my role and. Um, I try to be really clear with people that, um, with the families, that I'm not there to be in the way, but I'm there to very much assist. Sometimes the potential donor has some medical issues which I can help with as well, but predominantly I'm there to help them understand the process and and understand their ideas about how they might be involved. And Michael, what are the risks to the donor? If if we're using either bone marrow or peripheral stem cells, um, th- th- there's different risks for, for each of those procedures, but predominantly it's bone marrow uh, donation. And because that's a painful procedure, it, it's done under a general anaesthetic for all, all potential donors. Uh, and so there's a, there's a small risk related to that anaesthetic. Other than that, it's painful afterwards for, for a few days, um, but kids tend to recover really quickly. There's some small risk of bleeding or of infection, but generally kids get back to their normal state very quickly. They're asked to take some uh, iron replacement medication for a month or so afterwards, but generally uh, they recover really quickly. And so the risks are pretty small in terms of physical risk. You're emphasising the physical risk, and I think that's important. I guess that's leading open the psychological risks. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's probably the, the, the bigger issue and that's part of the process of meeting that child and, and family and helping to understand where they're up to. Um, most often the sibling, uh, no matter what the age of, the, of that, that uh, potential donor, um, may not have been, been involved very much in the discussion about what's going on with their sibling. So, so my questioning actually at the start is... is often you know a bit about that donor but also um what do they understand about their sibling's illness um and I ask them to tell me a bit about their sibling and what you know what they what they're like so I try and understand the relationships in the family a bit i guess that helps me understand what the potential psychological risks for for that family might be because um things most often go very well with bone marrow transplantation once once they're they're selected to go through it. It's not always the case. It can be bumpy and long for the recipient in, in terms of their hospitalisation and potentially they may die. And I, and I guess you know the sibling who's old enough to be really engaged with that process that could be a bit of a burden, I imagine. Um, I guess not even if they're old enough, but because if they were. Um, 
extremely young and um, you know un- under five years of age and not really able to understand the same concepts as a fifteen-year-old. Then, uh, but they will grow up and they will, they will there will be a family story. I'm sure about how bone marrow is provided and hopefully it's been very successful and that's why they're their unwell sibling is still around 10, 15, 20 years later, but that may not be the case. Sharon, this is why we involve a really good general paediatrician in these things uh, because Michael's batted me away nicely to find leg, I think, there. And, you know, it's kids of all ages, from infants and all the way up, and if it's not exactly how they're feeling now, it's how they're going to be later, and we often think about kids as beings and as becomings, and I think that's going to come out. Michael, I've got lots more to ask you, but I want to turn to Sharon because already Michael, I think, has started to take the lid off the Pandora's box of ethical issues that that are coming up. So have you got any early comments about what you've heard and where some of the ethical issues might lie? Yeah, so I think Michael has highlighted a really important consideration, which is the relationship between the donor and the recipient. And so there are a few different ways, I think, that ethically we can justify donation by a child to to someone in their life. So the traditional justification in the literature is based on benefit. Generally, medical interventions we perform on children and any risks that they entail are justified by the direct benefit that intervention offers the child. And parents are asked to make a decision that's in the best interest of that individual child. Of course, children are part of family units. And I think in usual medical decision making, often parents are also thinking about the broader interests of that family. And I think that's ethically justified as well, because children are going to do better when they're in families that are doing better. So that's really important. But obviously, as both of you have pointed out, in this situation, we're really focusing on the needs of this whole family and this individual child used is obviously a very loaded loaded term but is doing something for the interests of someone else predominantly. This is something I think we can still justify ethically and the predominant justification in the literature is that donating either the the bone marrow or peripheral blood for the stem cells will actually benefit the child donor as well. So the argument goes that when considering the risk benefit, we should be taking a really broad view of benefit. This, This child is going to benefit if their sibling survives. There are a couple of specific ethical conceptions of benefit in this this situation. So there's the intrafamilial benefit view, which is that the well-being of individuals and families is intimately connected. So I think a really important piece there is that connection between the donor and the potential recipient. So what is the nature of their relationship? And I think that's something, Michael, that in your role you're interrogating because there can be some really complex situations where perhaps that donor doesn't know the person they're being asked to donate to, potentially a biologically related sibling that isn't part of their family or somewhere where there's a complicated relationship, potentially even even one of abuse. So the benefit that we're assuming for that child might not actually accrue if that relationship is strained in some way. So I think that's one of the things that it seems you focus on in your assessment of the situation, which 
really goes to whether or not it's ethically justified. I think it's interesting, Sharon, you're using the term ethically justified. And I also think it's fascinating when you slipped and said used the child, because I was doing that in our practice and thinking about it too. And that automatically means that we need ethical justification, don't we? That again, simply, we could be selling out the interests of the donor child to the interests of the sick sibling and the family. And our old friend Emmanuel Kant would probably be rolling in his grave. And we do a fair bit of getting old Kant to roll in his grave on essential ethics, that doing something for the benefit of another, doing something to one person for the benefit of another is generally, at least Kantian ethics, bad ethics. And I think that's okay, but it does need then a strong ethical justification, which which you're hinting at, or I don't think you're hinting at it, you're telling us. Michael, Sharon's asked about the relationship between siblings and a sense, um, the intimacy between the two. Is is that something that in your experience has generally been there, that the siblings keen to help their sick sibling or have you had situations where the sibling doesn't want to? Generally, it's very straightforward and families come in with good intent to help another child or the sibling. But then there are special situations, as, as Sharon mentioned, some, sometimes families are not cohesive and uh, one sibling w- lives with an estranged father from an estranged mother and how they feel about each other. Um, so there are, there are complicating things. Um, the, the age and developmental stage of the child is key uh, in terms of understanding those relationships. If it's a really young child or developmentally a very young child, there will, be, will understandably be a focus on the procedural elements of the donation that uh, you know, needle phobia is is common and real, and that may be overwhelming for some, you know, young children or even older children with developmental issues. So all of that has to be taken into the mix. You may feel great about your sibling who's sick, but really not want a needle, and and therefore you've you've got to say, you know, understand that. I, I guess a, a a phrase I I often use is is that I guess for uh, children who are not Gillick competent, it's it's a decision for parents to make if it's the right thing for their child to donate. Uh, but we sure look surely look for that potential donor to be able to give it a developmentally appropriate assent to, to that procedure as well. So you want the donor, where possible, to go in keen to do it or, or happy enough to do it. And and you see your role as providing or supporting that justification? I guess I try to give the, make sure the family have clarity about why it's happening and, and, and the importance of hearing the voice of that donor, not just to be a spare part to be, to be used. Yes, because I could imagine if you're told that you're doing it, the, the donor child may be happy to do it, but no one or few people seem to want to be told to do stuff. Just go back to that intimacy thing, though, because, you know, as parents, we we want our kids or we think our kids all love each other or get on well. They're all going to have a sustained adult relationship. We know that's not that that's not true. Has that sort of been something that you've had to navigate? Or kids said, well, I just don't like Jimmy. He's, um, he's mean to me. 
Yeah, I, occasionally, but but it's it's pretty rare. And I and I think when somebody's down and they're unwell, I, I think families are incredibly uh, resilient and pulled together. So so that generally hasn't been a a big problem. But I've seen you know some some taste of that in some families too. Sharon, you raise the issue of potentially donors, siblings, you know, not being in such an intimate relationship because they might be in a different family would be the sort of classic thing. So that sort of raises the idea of duty. So I guess if there's an intimate, close relationship, then the burdens of duty seem less, but it, it just exposes the fact that somewhere in here is duty. How important do you think that is ethically? Yeah, so I mentioned before that generally the ethical justification in the literature is really about benefit to the child, but there is an alternative justification that's proposed. So a bioethicist by the name of Rebecca Pence has argued that really the more convincing ethical justification here is about duty rather than benefit. So we don't have all that much evidence about what kind of benefit going through this gives the the donor, but we can argue that people have obligations to each other just because they are family. For example, we expect parents to look after their children. Obviously, this is different because parents undertake to have children. But there is still an argument that siblings do owe each other something just because they are siblings. And I think, interestingly, this ethical justification seems borne out by your experiences, Michael, of families feeling that they or siblings feeling they want to do this for a sibling or someone in their family. And also in some of the literature I read as well about donors expressing the reasons, these are donors that were old enough to understand the process and be involved in it, expressing that they felt they had to do this for their sibling. They had a choice in the matter, but they felt as though they had to. So I think it's important to say that this duty isn't an absolute one and you still have to consider on a case-by-case basis whether or not there is a, you know, you can say you have a duty to your family. That doesn't mean in every single case that duty involves donating bone marrow. And I think important things to, to consider are, you know, the risk to that particular child in that particular situation, the likelihood that the recipient is in fact going to benefit because I think that can differ from one case to another and also, again, the nature of the relationship. So I think it's a case-by-case analysis, but I think Judy does provide a strong basis to start the conversation. Just carrying on from that, it, it then if we think about which of many siblings might be chosen, there's, there's some ethically sound argument to say that the oldest sibling should be chosen because the, they're more able to make a independent decision. And also if there are medical or developmental needs that children have, that might put them lower on the on the scale. Just to illustrate that, there are situations I've had where there have been adult sibling potential donors who have said no. And it, they've been asked and said, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be matched. I don't want to be involved. And I, I obviously don't know all the details of those relationships, but that's not something that I encounter often in terms of the children I see, because I don't see the adult donors. But we do ask the oldest child, unless there are the mitigating circumstances to to help us. So I think, Michael, that sets up, you know, one of probably the two main preconditions to this, isn't it? That 
the bone marrow transplant has a very good chance of working. And I suspect there are cases of desperation where perhaps it's not so certain and I think that throws in an extra ethical layer. And then the other precondition of you know, asking the oldest, particularly adult siblings to be to be the donors. But they, of course, have their free will not to or they may have conditions. And thinking about those conditions, Michael, the things like autistic spectrum disorder that might just throw a spanner in the works that make it more difficult for the sibling donor to be the sibling donor? Uh, I, I think any chronic medical or developmental condition makes it, it more fraught to, to be feeling that there is a possibility of understanding the relationship that would say that's a, that's a good thing to, to do. So, so and, and yes, I've, I've had a number of situations where uh, I've seen a child with developmental problems such as autism and the cases I've seen where that child is an HLA match, I haven't been too concerned because I, I still felt there was a, a connection and that there wasn't undue coercion um, invo- involved. Uh, yes, a, ju- a judgment call, but I guess if that uh, potential donor had been more severely disabled, then it would have raised more concerns and, and then I think I would look outside the consultation room to get some more advice. I love your term, undue coercion. I was rolling in my grave thinking of what's due coercion. <laughs> um, I know it's just really a turn of a turn of phrase there, but I, th- I think there is this sense in this space, and I want to ask Sharon about you know where the family and, and I started in a preamble thinking about the authority of the family because normally it's a family's job responsibility right to make decisions for the health care of their child and we're thinking about an individual who's sick and they're making a choice for the sick child that happens in this case to be involving the non-sick child. So is this uh, something where the family really don't have the authority to make this decision, Sharon, which would break with a pretty strong normative and, and ethical practice? It would. So so generally we trust parents to make decisions for their children because we think that they're in the best position to tell us what the best interests of the child are. And obviously that term best interests is a subjective one. And I mean, some people would say that best interests when we're talking about medical intervention should really be thinking only about medical benefits, which in this case, you'd have donation being completely off the table. But I think I think there's a broader acceptance that best interests cover a whole range of things and children have a whole range of interests, including things like their connection to family, their relationship with their parents. So I do think that in this situation, although there is, I guess I'd, I'd call it, it's almost an inherently coercive, this situation that the parents are in, where they have one really sick child assuming this child's only chance or best chance of cure or survival is the donation from their other healthy child, there's something, there's a clear conflict you could almost call inherently coercive. But I still think that, again, parents are justified in considering the interests of a whole family unit. So I think it's important to have extra checks in place, like someone being an advocate for the donor like Michael is doing, but the parents should still be involved in that decision-making and, of course, also the child to the extent that they're able. Have you ever felt uh, heavied, pressured by the 
parents in your assessment? Um, or, 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 you know, I'm thinking of a situation where they're bringing the donor child to you and they're just a bit sneakily worried that you're, what your role might be and that you're going to say no. I have to break the ice, but I don't think I've felt pushed very much. Um, I've more issues with uh, families who are not particularly health literate because some of the concepts we're talking about that they just haven't thought of particularly and they just consider that their child will do what they say and and for me to support that child's autonomy uh, may feel a bit foreign in some situations. I think that's important, Michael, isn't it? I think in all aspects, and I guess we're learning from this case about how we might relate to, you know, other situations, but, you know, finding out how families make decisions in their families uh, is, is really important. I, th- I think I think Sharon's point about parents are usually in the best position to make decisions for their family in terms of medical decisions, but in fact they make lots of decisions about their families, and we support that. You know, the, the, we, as Lynn says, the zone of parental discretion, and that's that's well past medical issues. I often tell parents that they're not their children's friends and they often have to give them advice that they don't like. So one piece of advice for a potential donor who says they don't want a needle is you're going to have a needle and that needs to be supported. But there are lots of other decisions. And and sometimes I point out to the the children themselves that, you know, we've trusted your parents to make great decisions about you all your life, and they're going to make another good one now. And so I think they need to feel that the, it's not me making that decision, it's actually the parents. It's interesting you raise the zone of parental discretion, which is you know such a strong tool that we use here at the Children's Bioethics Centre. And it's usually used when doctors and parents disagree as being a sort of classic framing of it. But I think it actually works really well here where, you know, pure best interest for the individual, as Sharon's pointing out, and and not to donate because it shouldn't have pain and psychological concern, but when you put the whole package together and think about the interest of the entire family, in fact, the individual child who's asked to be a donor will do best in a well-functioning family and ideally with a sibling who's alive. Although, Sharon, it just worries me a little that it's all too easy for us to write a narrative that we like. And I sense that he talks about the benefits to the child. Now, maybe research can can help us there. Are we just writing a narrative that's comfortable and then you know, joining the any parental or bone marrow transplant team coercion for this sibling and justifying it by benefit to the child? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, John. And with my legal hat on, I was looking a little bit at uh, the law around this issue. And so actually in... I won't get too deep into the technicalities. Thank you. (laughs) But in some states, there's actually no provision in the law for donation of tissue by really young children who aren't able to be at all involved in the process. So you have to actually go and get a court order in order to do it technically. And so the court has looked at a few of these cases and it really struck me that the way they made these decisions was asking whether donating was in fact in the best interests of the donor, which I think, as you say, was potentially a bit of a stretch. Um, But that's where I think Rebecca Pence's idea of duty being the starting point for the ethical argument is really helpful because I think that allows us to consider a whole lot of different factors without saying that this necessarily has to be the thing that is in the best interests of the donor. 
Michael, you've probably had some interesting things happen, some interesting stories. Have you got about this that take this into account? Have you got any? Well, uh, look, uh, I, I guess it's important. It's important to not identify individual cases, but um, I've had uh, uh, I've had one set of twins uh, where both were identical HLA matches, so they were both equally able to be a donor. And um, when I, I guess, when I got a referral for that family, I, I wondered what I was being asked to to help with um, and I wondered if I, I was going to be asked to say which one would be uh, the donor. Uh, but in fact, the, the family came, uh, they were an amazing family and I, and I had great respect for everybody in the room, particularly the kids, but but also, also the parents. I think they did an amazing job of really discussing this well outside the consultation room uh, before they got in and they continued that conversation after we'd had our meeting. Um, th- there were some characteristics about one child that might have made them more suited than the other, I thought, but the family decided outside the room and did that so very cohesively and I believe it all went very well. So um, that, was, uh, that was a fascinating case and it taught me a lot. Fascinating, isn't it? Because we often in ethics focus on the negative and that's the situations where we get drawn in. And here's one where both are really wanting to do it. And I can sense from what you said that perhaps more commonly in the older, slightly older kids, um, that's that's the way they come to it. Although uh, I, I guess if they're just too happy to donate, I think we probably need to smell a bit of a rat. One of the things that We've sort of gone a long way into this, but there's a starting point because you said both of the girls were HLA matches, which suggests that they both had HLA typing before they've got to you. Strikes me the starting point is actually before you get the HLA typing because you're already being drawn into it and you mightn't even want the initial blood test. So where do you think the patient advocate's role should start? I think there are things that we can improve. I guess often in the heat of things going wrong or, you know, getting some bad news that it's a higher risk condition and that we need to proceed towards transplant, that things happen quickly. When I see uh, a sibling, potential sibling donor, most often the HLA typing has been done and I, I, that's been organised by the uh, potential recipient's doctors. Uh, and I suspect that that hasn't been done uh, in a way that perhaps I would advise is done and, and I think we can improve on that. Um, interestingly, um, I also often see children siblings referred from an adult hospital, in usually around Victoria, where there's a, an adult sibling who requires a transplant and those potential donors come unmatched and I have a different conversation with, with, that, uh, with that child. Um, which, and I think that's a better process. Yeah, I saw, Michael, you, because I think you've been doing wonderful work and you've been smiling through this and this is an audio medium. I can't see. There were some frowns there, a couple of lines on your forehead, um, which is another way of demonstrating ethical heat. They're there all the time, John. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> ethical heat. Sharon, what do you think about you know having the kid matched already and then they're deep into the process and then they're sent to Michael? Are they just retrofitting um, support for the parents in the doctor's views? Yeah, I guess... I guess the risk there, again, going back to some of that limited literature there is about 
children's experiences of this, um, I think one of the concerning things in there is people feeling that they don't have a choice in the matter. And I think once you've been through that process already and you discover you're, you're a match, I think there can be a, a real feeling, well, what else is there to do from here? I think having a conversation before that time might be helpful in preparing people to be able to more carefully consider whether or not they wanted to go through that testing and be in the position to find out whether or not they're a match. I imagine that could be really helpful. I also, just practically, there might be, we would need to have many more Michaels in order for them to consult with a donor advocate before going through the test, I imagine. Well, it could be three sibs. So, Michael, would you see the three sibs together and explain things and see if one's a little happier and therefore you start with them or older or simpler and they get their blood first and then rank them or would you have to see them all individually and give them the full Michael treatment? I, I'll do whatever's necessary, but it usually isn't three, so... Right, yeah. so you'd be, you'd be okay there. Michael, there are... Sometimes families know this is coming. It might be perhaps not a malignancy. It might be severe combined uh, immunodeficiency, sickle cell, and they'll create another infant either in the hope that it's an HLA match or they'll use IVF and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis technology to select an embryo who's a match. So therefore we have a child who's brought into the world as a saviour sibling. That sort of change things in the way we think about this? Not for me in the consultation room, no. I've had a, n- a small number of those children and I've never felt anything other than an entirely warm feeling about about that child. However, if you look at it in the cold light of day, it does feel like we're using somebody, but we're actually using every sibling in the same way. So I don't think for me it makes a material difference that that, that that child needs assessment. But in the case of skidded, it often is a very, very young child, an infant, and because they want to get on with that as quickly as possible because it's the best treatment. So that, that makes it harder harder to have that sense of connection of that infant with the potential recipient. But later on they will. Sharon, I don't see any frowns on your uh, forehead about that. How do you feel about, uh, or ethically perhaps, not so much personally, but ethically about that? created sibling? Does it change the, the, the way we should think about this? I don't think it changes the considerations that we have when going through this donation process. I think, if anything, we need to be looking more carefully at the same aspects of the donation for those children. I think there are really tricky ethical questions around created siblings that maybe uh, we're not going to get into into this this podcast. I think that's that's another one that would have can't terribly distressed. Well, we don't want to distress him too much, but let's have that podcast anyway. I think that would be uh, fascinating. Michael, you're doing this and I know you've, uh, you know, practices you do and you've had some training in ethics, but what, what if it gets too much? What if it just really is, you know, I'm imagining a you know, very disabled child who's also got some medical considerations, taking bone marrow is, is going to be problematic. Uh, even I think, you know, you mentioned taking iron, but iron's a pretty yucky drug to taking it, constipation and tummy pain or diarrhoea. So, you know, I'm thinking you're there with ASIB, perhaps they're uh, the match. It's just not looking like a goer. You know, is that all fall to you or is there some place you can go for additional advice? Well, there is because there's an ethics reference group that can help out in this situation. I think I, I tried really hard, though, in the room to get some sense about how things are going. And as I say, most often I don't 
walk out feeling terribly conflicted. But there often is a lot of emotion in the room. And, and that's that's what I often have to deal with at the time. Um, so sometimes there's that reference to the ethics group. And I've, I've, when that's happened, it's been helpful. But some of the practice that I need to look at is is how far I go with each child of because uh, each each potential donor is a little bit different, not just because of their age, but also their developmental stage, them whether there are mental health issues about biases that the parents bring in. You know, one one really common thing that I have to decide about is do I talk about the difficulties that the recipient might have, including, you know, being extremely sick and in hospital for a long time. Uh, that will mean the parent, if there are two parents in the family, that there's that, that they're tag teaming from home and back to hospital, which means that the quality of life for other children in the family is is definitely impaired for weeks or months, um, and that sibling might die. Um, now I have to judge whether there's been any of that discussion with the potential donor at all, and is it appropriate that I have that discussion? There are times I absolutely think it is, and, and I guess particularly for you know the, the much more competent older kids, I, I definitely raise those issues even if it hasn't been raised before, um, and I make a, a call on that. But around the age of eight to ten, I have to I have to be very careful to understand how a family talks to their kids, and and that's often a sometimes I have a discussion with. You know, often with the parents alone for a little while to help understand family values because I have to I have to respect those too. Yeah, it's important too. I think one of the roles as an experienced paediatrician is coaching parents in, in you know who are in an unfamiliar situation. It's the skills we bring in how to be a parent of a child in an unfamiliar situation and how to you know it won't be a single conversation perhaps with you with the donor sibling and how to how to do that. Michael, I think we've given you a pretty good workout here and I feel like I understand this uh, a lot better and I really like the idea that in assessing the child and the individual's needs and thinking about the relationship between the donor child and the sibling who needs a bone marrow and and the family um, and the idea of duty and how that might also strongly underpin what the project here is and, and, and how the parents sit in their conflicted decision-making role. So as I want to do, I like to tie people down with virtual rope and make them commit to something. So, uh, so Michael, just as we finish here, are we selling out the donor child to the interests of the sick child? Yes or no? No, we're not doing that. Sharon, I know you're an ethicist and we're still a lawyer, so confining you to a, I'll confine you to a short answer. Are we selling out the donor child to the interests of the sick child? Selling out is a strong word, John. I don't think we are selling out the donor as long as we are appropriately taking into account their particular situation and how this is going to affect them as an individual. That's a good answer. I'm happy with that. And I think Michael's shown us that he does that. I think so too. I can be be happy. Thank you, Michael. Michael, thank you for your 
involvement and joining us on Essential Ethics. You're welcome. And Sharon, thank you for letting me put you uh, in the hot seat there for (laughs) ethical interpretation. Thanks, John. If you've enjoyed this podcast, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues. You'll find plenty of other interesting podcasts on the Essential Ethics site. Today's podcast was recorded in the creative studios at the Royal Children's Hospital. The podcast was made possible by generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference held in September, look us up on rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. Thank you.